Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. This podcast is about the relationship between plants and the microbes in the soil. In this podcast, we will learn about the tight coexistence between plants and microbes and how we can put a better understanding of microbes to good use, as biopesticides, for example. With me today are Susan Boyevchko, I'm a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada at Saskatoon. Yeah, my name is Tim Dumonceau. I'm a research scientist at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Saskatoon Research Centre. I ask Sue and Tim to start with a key message before we kick into our conversation. Well, what we're trying to do with biopesticides, for example, which are one form of biological uh, organisms in agriculture, is to develop new tools in the toolbox for farmers to use to control their crop pests. And uh, this provides new modes of action and uh, uh, combating pesticide resistance and whatever. And it's going to actually help us to reduce our carbon footprint, um, you know, in the environment by by developing uh, what we call clean technology uh, for farmers to use. Great. Thanks, Sue. Tim? Yeah, sure. I would say that uh, plants, like all of us, live in a microbial world and, and have evolved in a microbial world. So they're surrounded by, by microbes. And the plants will actively manipulate their environment in order to recruit microorganisms that can benefit them in uh, combating both biotic and abiotic stresses. And we're beginning to have the tools to understand the complete array of organisms that will associate with plants and help them to uh, to resist these stresses. I want to know a bit about the two of you. So, Sue, where did you go to high school? Oh, that's going way back. Um, I went to high school in Calgary and was actually really good in science. So I went and pursued that at university. And what did you want to do in science? Did you have any science ambitions at that time? Oh, um, well, I started naively. I, I went to university uh, at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and uh, I was naive to think that I had very limited options. And so I went into science and actually, Tim, you'd be surprised. I went into genetics in my first year, but I was a little disillusioned at that time so I um, I discovered agriculture and so I eventually went into agriculture and pursued that lucky for us how did they how did agriculture lure you in well I think it was kind of the exposure about the different areas that you could that you could uh, study it could be uh, soil science, um, horticulture, food science, those sorts of things. And I ended up um, uh, studying horticulture and eventually went into plant pathology and crop protection. I would encourage anybody who doesn't really know what they're doing to go into agriculture because I mean, the, the possibilities are, you know, almost any science or any job you can imagine fits into agriculture in some way or another. Yeah, I, I think it's a matter of finding uh, or discovering where do our where does our food come from. We're going to get into the uh, the microbiome and uh, biopesticides, but I'm going to go to Tim. So Tim, where did you go to high school? 
Sure, I was born and raised in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where I currently live, and I went to high school, actually where my kids now go to high school, or at least the last one that's still hanging on, um, at Holy Cross High School in Saskatoon. Have you ever left Saskatoon? Oh yeah, I did my PhD at McGill University in Montreal. I spent some research time in France, and uh, we all, also my family lived in Winnipeg for a while where when I worked at the National Microbiology Lab for a few years. Okay, well, interesting. We probably won't get into that, but that was that would have been an, an interesting part of your life. And what, so go back to high school, or what were your science ambitions at that time? How, how did you get into science? Well, you know, in high school, like like many young high school students, I really didn't know what, what I wanted to do. And I've had this discussion with high school uh, students in the recent past. It's very typical, I think, for young people not to know exactly where they want to go. I knew I was half decent at science. It wasn't like I got super high marks or anything like that. By the time I got to university, I started learning a little bit more about various areas of science. I knew I wasn't so good at math to do physics. But microbiology really appealed to me because as I learned more about it, I realized that it touches everything. The applications are everywhere. My, my undergraduate education was in medical microbiology. And of course, it has much application there, as we all know, and we've been living the last couple of years. But there's applications well outside of that. Um, my master's degree was in cancer research. But then when I did my PhD, I changed over to industrial microbiology, working in the pulp and paper research um, center in, uh, in Montreal. And, um, and I realized that microbiology has applications everywhere. It touches everything because we live in this microbial world. There's nothing that it doesn't touch. So I'm really excited that I that I chose microbiology because it gives me such a wide range of of things that I can um, that I can investigate and be interested in. How did you get to plants and and Ag Canada in Saskatoon? Yeah, when I was finishing off my uh, my PhD, I I was looking for a place to do a, a postdoctoral fellowship, and something came up at the National Research Council here in Saskatoon, uh, which is um, very much uh, food oriented, and and it wasn't a big leap for me to work in that area because again, it's it's microbiology slash plant science. And um, like microbiology, agriculture sits at the underpinning of everything. We, we have the society that we have because of agriculture. People can specialize in things. I can spend my days thinking about questions in um, microbial ecosystems instead of trying to find food because, because of agriculture. So it's a real privilege to be able to work in agriculture, which um, sits at the base with energy of everything that we do. Is it a surprise to you how little we know in agriculture about how important the microbiome is to, to crop production? I think that it's not a surprise because the tools are only just getting to where they need to be in order to develop that understanding. In the past, we've relied on culture-based methods to culture out the organisms that are that uh, that we think probably could be interested, and that has given us enormous amounts of benefits, like the kinds of work that Sue has been has been doing. But there's a whole invisible area of of uh, the micro microbiota that was not is easily accessible to the normal culture media that we would um, that we would produce. So now that we have these DNA sequencing methods, we can identify these organisms and there's there's more work on how to culture them, how to culture them in in groups or consortia together and to, to get them out of their get out this um, get at this invisible majority of the uh, of the microorganisms that associate with our agricultural products. Well, when you look through a, a microscope at the world in the soil. Do you do you see the microbes, or are they so tiny that 
that it goes back to this DNA analysis really is the only way to track them? Or, or can you see all these little things? <laughs> you can certainly see them. You can see them through standard microscopy, um, through the kinds of microscopes that you use in, um, in uh, undergraduate microbiology classes. You could see them with electron microscopes, of course. So even the viruses, viruses like uh, SARS-CoV-2, you can see them under electron microscopy. Um, but that gives you a limited amount of information. They look like rods or they look like circles or they, you know, they look like um, tiny particles. But what the DNA analysis gives you is a, a signature, a way to identify what that organism is. And, um, and honestly, as, as a microbiologist, it's kind of embarrassing to say I don't have a, I don't have a microscope in my lab. Um, I don't use one very often. Um, most of the, the viewing we do of microbial communities is viewing the sequences of their, of their uh, DNA. Hmm. So you, Tim, used the word culture, and uh, you have a, a culture collection. It's kind of, I guess that's that's where you work from, like a like a toolkit, maybe you could call it. But how, what's in your culture collection, and how did you put that collection together? Oh boy, that started almost thirty years ago, and uh, uh, prior to there being a whole area of microbiome research we were isolating from the the soil and from the roots of plants uh, bacteria and uh, culture them by the traditional methods and then we individually test them for different biopesticide properties such as ability to act as biopesticides for weeds which is where I started and and then I started adding more value to that culture collection by looking at how um, some of these bacteria could be used as biopesticides for a number of uh, uh, plant diseases as well. So um, we have well over a couple thousand um, purified uh, cultures of uh, individual bacteria. And we really didn't know a lot about you know, um, what were the possibilities of utilizing them until several years ago, Tim and I started uh, working together and um, Tim opened my eyes to the, the whole area of microbiome research and and uh, how we could um, practically utilize these uh, in, you know, in, you know, in a fashion forward sort of way. I was at one of the um, chemistry company labs in in Germany, where they they create molecules and then test them to see where they might work in agriculture, in pharmaceuticals, etc. A lot of them maybe don't do anything useful. Um, so, so it kind of reminds me of your culture collection. So how do you? Let's talk about Sclerotinia stemron specifically. And how do you take your thousands of of bacteria and and test them to see where they might work? Well, you have to develop a, what we call a bioassay or a type of test that's specific against the sclerotinia in canola. And what we do is is um, we test their ability to reduce the population of a pathogen on the canola. So this is where we take the microbe and bring it 
as to the plant, so to speak, and see how the plant reacts, see how the uh, how the plant pathogen reacts, and um, then we decide, okay, um, uh, what level of control are we going to be expecting of those of those biopesticides, and then we select almost like the best of the best from nature. Do we know that that some of them do work on sclerotinia stem rot? How far along are you? Um, surprisingly, we're, we're very far along, not close enough because we keep uh, finding uh, more questions and answers. But we actually have um, identified uh, a few leading bacterial strains to control the sclerotinia. So we've been doing tests on agar, followed by tests on um, uh, individual uh, canola plants. And the ultimate test will be not just in the greenhouse, but how it works in the field. Mm -hmm. These are these are living things that need to survive in in our in our climate and in our Absolutely. fields. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, I'm going to come back to you. Let's talk a bit about this this word that you use that's new to me, the hollow biont. biont. Yeah. <laughs> and um, th this notion that we're not introducing bacteria, and, and we talked about this a bit already, but it's not like we're introducing these into the soil environment. The soil environment is is full of all kinds of life, um, and 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 some live on the roots, some live even in the roots, which I think is is amazing. Um, what What is the holobiont and, and why is knowing more about it important? The holobiont is this concept that the plant or even the animal, the human, the dog, um, the cow, is more than just a collection of plant or animal cells. That because we live in a microbial world, we're associated with with um, billions of, of bacterial and even other uh, fungal type of uh, species that that are within us and 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 help and are part of us. So an old thing that we used to use a long time ago was that to consider the notion that that uh, for a human there are ten times as many bacterial cells as there are human cells in our body. So a human is 10% human cells and 90% bacterial cells. It's just sort of a way to think about it. And the same the same concept applies to plants. Of course, there's a rich and diverse um, microbiota associated with the soil and, and the, the plants, particularly the root systems, will shape that in order to um, optimize their, their growth conditions. But the same applies to the above ground parts of the plants. You have epiphytes, so these are organisms that live on the surface. And you also have endophytes in the aerial parts of the plant that live within and between the, the, the plant cells. So microbial life is part and parcel of, of a plant. And it's important to understand that, to understand that that is part of the, the genetic um, um, array of tools that is, is available to a plant to adapt to its environment and to grow optimally. You said that it's maybe not just plants. And one one example that uh, you talked about in, in another publication was about aphids. And even though they may be individuals, it's the, the group itself is is like an organism. Have I got that right? Well, it can. It's the whole notion. It, it, this whole area of research challenges our notion of what is an organism anyway. 
it's not as easy to define biologically as you might think. You think that, okay, I'm an organism, my dog's an organism, the canola plant out in the field is an organism. That's a way to think about it. But there's other ways to think about what an organism is. And these are not my ideas. These are, are, are ideas that are current um, thinking in, in, uh, in biological interaction. So an organism can be defined by the interaction of the two factors of cooperation and conflict. So an organism could be a, a group of cells or a group of multicellular um, creatures that exhibit high cooperation and low conflict. So in the case of the aphid clones, they, they are they are all genetically identical, and and by by, by reproducing in that way, the mother aphid um, increases the chance that her genetic lineage will survive because not all of the aphids will get will get eaten. But those aphid clones don't really work together towards a common goal. They all go their own way, so they're they're more like a group. But when you think about things like like plants and the and the um, and the mycorrhizal fungi that associate with their roots, they really do work together towards a common goal and can be considered as part of a single organism under that uh, under that way of thinking. Uh, that same publication, you said that 95% of plants have mycorrhizal interactions. Um, and do the, do the mycorrhizae, do they live on the roots or are they one of these organization, organ, <laughs> organisms that is inside the root? They associate very closely with the roots. It depends on the type of uh, mycorrhizal interaction, but um, mostly the mycorrhizae will associate very closely with the roots, penetrating the the, the root cells, uh, or the root tissue. But the it's the fungal mycelia that go out into the soil and they they um, they uh, obtain the nutrients from the soil and they transfer it to the plant in exchange for things they get from the plant, like photosynthate from the leaves and so forth. So it's a real interaction that um, benefits both of these quote, parts of the organism, really. A few of these references, including the next one about broad beans, come from an article Tim wrote called Extraterrestrial Extrapolations of Earthly Organismality at kios.com. That's Q-E-I-O-S dot com. It's worth a read. You said that broad beans um, use this this fun, fungal network to communicate with each other. This How is something that, work? that comes out of the literature. So um, I first got interested in this when I encountered the work of, of Suzanne Sumard, who's a, a professor at the University of British Columbia. And she's done some absolutely extraordinary work and she's getting a lot of press nowadays. So some listeners may be familiar with her work. Um, and I'm certainly really impressed by it. Um, she's showed that that initially showed that trees will connect to one another through their mycorrhizal networks and will communicate by shuttling chemicals back and forth from from individual tree to individual tree. And other plants, it's been shown by other researchers, will also do this. And one of the examples that was taken from the literature is is uh, beans being um, attacked by aphids will shuttle a signal to their neighbors to say that there are aphids around here, you better up your defense mechanisms. So it's a way that that uh, plants can communicate with one another under the ground through these these mycorrhizal networks. So you're, you're looking at bacteria primarily. Um, Tim and I were talking about fungi. Um, mm -hmm. Is Are the fungi the bad guys and the bacteria the good guys or is it a, a mix of both? Yeah, it's a mix of both. Um, for example, like with bacteria, you can have good guys and bad guys, uh, or some that 
do nothing. So you might have uh, a whole microbiome, you know, of, of uh, bacteria that uh, some are pathogenic, some are plant growth promoting, and some do nothing. Same thing with, uh, with fungi as well. You can have some pathogenic. This is where, where we come to plant diseases and th that work being done by plant pathologists where there's certain um, uh, fungi that cause diseases. There's certain uh, fungi that do nothing. And there's, there's for example, uh, endophytic uh, fungi that um, infect into the plant. And, and actually some of those can act as biocontrol agents or biopesticides mm. as well. It made me think a bit about the insect world and that we've got, let's say thousands of species in a field, you know, a handful are pests, uh, a larger group are beneficials, and a whole bunch of them are just there doing their thing and not really affecting the crop at all. And maybe you could say the same about the, the microbes. That's right. So it's a whole continuum of, you know, different microbes, different organisms and what they're capable of doing in nature. Now, Tim described, um, you know, an ecosystem, but some of what you're doing is, is bringing in, uh, say, a bacteria that serves a purpose, but is a bacteria that wouldn't normally be there. Is that is that a fair description? Uh that's a very good case because some of our bacteria that we've been developing as biopesticides, they're almost living in the background. And uh, what we do is artificially increase them and then reapply them uh, into, into uh, the crop to make them more effective. So, so you could say we're doing this artificially. I mean, we use the word silver bullet so much, and I think these are not these are not going to be silver bullets necessarily. These are going to be tweaks on the the soil environment to, to to like little helps along the way. Maybe you're going to get maybe the ultimate goal is to is to create a bit of a you know um, stable environment. Are these ever going to be you know acute uh, control measures, uh, or is this going to be a baseline support system? I think uh, what we're trying to do is develop uh, what we call integrated pest management strategies. So we're actually using a whole array of pest control options, whether through plant breeding with uh, crop rotation and uh, um, synthetic chemicals and then biologicals. The one interesting thing I want to put out there with biologicals is unlike a lot of the synthetic chemicals, many of them can offer more than one mode of action. So what we're working with right now with the sclerotinia project, we suspect that there's at least two modes of action operating. And that makes it harder for the pest population to develop resistance to a single mode of action pesticide. So um, this is where the option of using biologicals is a plus. Hmm. And, and would you, do you see it or is it possible that, you know, we, we're going to have sclerotinia, but that these, these two mode bacteria keep it at a, 
at a manageable, acceptable level. Is that possible? Um, I wouldn't say yes. I wouldn't say no. Uh, but we really have to start tricking the plant pathogen by offering a variety of pest control options. And then that's where, um, you know, developing where the pest population uh, for it to develop resistance to any one pest control option is much more reduced. And that's where I see uh, us. Um, I, I'm trying to think of what term I, I want to use, but but keeping the sclerotinia at bay. Yeah. What's the challenge in bringing these these products to market into into widespread use? Oh, or oh, there are several challenges. Well, um, not so much anymore as a as a couple or a few decades ago was is the regulatory climate is uh, when we're working with the regulators. In this case, in Canada, we're working with the Pest Management Regulatory Agency. And um, a couple decades or a few decades ago, they understood very little about microbial uh, pesticides or inoculants. And so they were using the synthetic chemical pesticide market as, okay, this is these are the um, hoops you have to jump through to show safety, to show uh, efficacy. Um, um, they're also worried, uh, the regulators also worry about that these things don't uh, become established um, in our environment. It is actually like, um, you know, with synthetic uh, pesticides where um, you would have uh, um, some of the pesticides actually building up in population in the soil uh, so that they um, you get a lot of residues in terms of the uh, pesticides and so what you want to do is make sure that for our biopesticides the when we introduce them into the field uh, they're in a high enough number where you get pest control but then eventually the, the biopesticide gets reduced into a background uh, so that it don't uh, reside in the soil environment for for several years. Mm -hmm. And I mean, back to the so the regulatory system is coming along. But yeah, and, and, and also like, you know, we still have to learn a lot more how to mass produce them, how to formulate them. Those are areas as well. But that that'll come along because there's a lot of big companies involved now. Yes. Yeah. And there's a notion that um, in time and maybe fairly soon, uh, the the biological side of things and side of pest management will will soon take over from from the synthetic side. Do you believe that? Well, personally, that's a hope. <laughs> But at the same time, I think we will reach a, an equilibrium in in uh, what pest control products are available. In some cases, uh, for some pests, we may not be able to develop biologicals very well. So we got to leave our options open because there's a role for everyone to play. Tim, how do you, how does your work 
help agriculture? Sure, Jay. Um, for me, I think one of the one of the benefits of microbiome research um, and thinking about about these plants in this sort of organismal kind of a concept is the idea of identifying novel organisms that you might not otherwise uh, consider as um, as useful biocontrol agents. And and this is not just theoretical. This is actually happening. I, I encountered a paper um, published very very recently, just in the last week or so. A group from China that was looking at um, at the interaction of the the plant microbiome and a fungal disease pressure and um, and in a citrus plant, and they actually went in and sequenced the the genome using the kinds of tools that uh, that we've also employed, and they identified these organisms um, and actually went in and cultured out those organisms, things like Methylobacterium sphingomonas, Mucilinibacter, Pantoea, these kinds of bacteria, and they they were actually um, observed reductions in disease index, very significant, up to 90% reduction in disease index. By by first understanding what the what the complete organism of the plant is, and then targeted culturing those um, those um, beneficial bacteria, and then applying them, and were able to reduce disease pressure. So I think that that's that's the key thing is 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 not just leaving these sequences as a bunch of letters on a computer with sophisticated statistical analysis, but actually is taking that next step and having an organism in your hand and doing the kind of work that Sue has been doing for decades, and and actually having um, something that will, will actually have crop um, production benefits. You, you and Sue have, have presented together on this topic, and you have one PowerPoint presentation that, that has the subhead, Nature Fighting Nature. In some way, I see this as, as maybe not so much a fight, but an understanding of, uh, we're getting a better understanding on, on how to help help nature help us. Absolutely, and that's where this con this concept of the interaction between these these variables of conflict and cooperation. So we're looking at at a, at a system, the plant and its microbiome, with high cooperation and low conflict, and bringing some of those um, some of those uh, microorganisms into a situation of increased of high conflict and low cooperation against these um, these um, these fungal and bacterial pathogens. So it's a it's a way of thinking about it. And for you and in, in, in the challenges, do you are there specific challenges that that you have to overcome to start seeing some commercial success? Or is it is it just you know, you've got the tools and it's just the time and the work? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the challenges are very similar to Sue because Sue has been has has been the one in there in the commercialization side and really bringing these things um, into something that is is useful. So getting a, an industrial partner interested in the work, um, you know, generating the um, the initial data, but um, and then getting somebody on board that's able to actually bring it to uh, to producers because we're not capable of that. Um, we're capable of doing the upstream work, but but the downstream work, the, the the formulation and 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 actual production is best done by um, by commercial entities that can actually bring this to producers. Tim, what what's your next year or two look like on within this field? So uh, very recently, I was privileged to receive a um, a grant from the Canola Agron Agronomic Research Program, um, where we will look at the effect of the microbiome on abiotic stress, particular particularly drought. Where we will work with um, scientists here at AEFC and and look at uh, to see if we can identify organisms recruited by the plant. 
um, microbial species recruited by the plant um, to help them resist uh, drought. So that's what it's going to keep me very busy for the next couple of years. Well, that'll be, uh, could be a very helpful result once you get there. Um, Sue, how about you? What's your next year or two look like? Uh, well, we we have uh, that sclerotinia biopesticide project to get completed. And we also have, um, with a commercial partner, um, hopefully this will lead to the commercialization of a biopesticide for control of potato late blight. And Tim's been involved with that as well. We have just uh, last year received two, uh, I think three patents, and there's a couple other patents uh, involved in that. And uh, we want to work with the industry partner. And getting back to the Sclerotinia project, you know, we've been talking to some uh, companies and they seem to be interested in that as well. So it's getting um, all that lined up. You and I talked before about the the inoculant analogy uh, for for pulses, um, and this would be on the, more on like boosting the the uh, nutrient fixing or the nutrient gathering. But I can see how this might, if we if we approach uh, some of these biological tools, biopesticides, as as almost like an inoculant, that may help farmers wrap their minds around how this could help them. Yeah, for sure, and and. Um... The whole idea that these things are tough to use, uh, it's our approach to look at something that is is as easy to use as other pest control products, such as whether it's legume inoculants or synthetic chemicals, is to make biologicals more user-friendly as well, and to not make it uh, a formidable type of approach to managing our crops. All right, well, let's wrap up. I'm, I'm going to ask each of you what um, to go right, right back to our thoughts at the beginning on on the key message. So listeners to this podcast, what would be the key thing you'd want them to to take home from it? Sue, we'll start with you. Um, well, like I said, we're trying to um, give the farmers more tools to manage their uh, crop pests. We're trying to help uh, um, develop biopesticides as a way to manage their uh, pesticide-resistant weeds and other diseases and and really to reduce our carbon footprint in the way we um, uh, manage our crops as well. Make it more environmentally friendly. Yeah, the notion of, of using more tools in, in an integrated approach um, we've talked about this a lot, but that does sound like, you know, as we bring more tools to the market, that it that it gets easier and, and we're getting a better understanding of, of how that works. Hey, Sue? Yeah, and it's like you said, there's no silver bullet. And I think in the past, we've been managing some of our crop pests um, using one management tool as a silver bullet and if we can integrate it into a pest management strategy then we can um, be tricking our our crop pests uh, so that uh, they don't develop resistance tim what's your take-home message um for me it's that that an increased understanding of 
plants and their interaction with the microbial life that they're surrounded with. And this um, concept of plants as more than just a collection of plant cells and even even entire ecosystems as um, under this organismal concept and studying them and coming to understand it more will lead to uh, to um, um, actual products that can benefit crop production. It's already doing so on a limited scale. The, the tools are getting better and better. They're not perfect. But the, the DNA analysis tools that uh, that we and many, many, many others have employed um, do have the power to reveal the um, um, microbial life that can be of benefit to crop production. And it's coming. It's not perfect, but it is coming. One of the things that Charles Darwin said, uh, Tim, and I'm, I'm borrowing this from, from you, so it comes in a roundabout way, is, is the root, root of the plant being kind of the brain of the plant. And I think the more we can understand the, the root and what it does and, and the environment that, that it lives in, I think we'll be better for it. Absolutely. It's a, it's a fascinating more than 150 year notion that has seen increased um, uh, reawakening in the in the last little while that the root is really the brain of the plant. It's at least analogous functionally to an animal brain. Thank you again to Susan Bayachko and Tim Dumanso, public researchers helping to increase our knowledge of plant and microbe interactions and guiding the best of these discoveries toward commercial products. Is there anything that you wished we talked about that we didn't? I mean, that we could talk for, for days on this, but <laughs> is, there, is there something you wish we had mentioned? No, I, I really like how uh, we were able to integrate the theoretical and the actual, so I'm so thrilled that we were able to get uh, my colleague Sue um, in on, on this as well, so I'm really happy with the way it was covered. Yeah, and when Tim joined our, our team, when he first joined uh, the Saskatoon Research Centre, um, I think the two of us probably had a light bulb where we saw the possibilities and, and then we kind of connected and started um, working on projects where we started seeing the, um, the possibilities. So I think a lot of this microbiome research kind of opens up uh, a whole new realm of possibilities. So I'm hoping that um, the future is bright in terms of biological control and other um, types of biological research. Agreed. Thank you so much, both of you. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for listening.